Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy? or a bra that's comfortable. Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Wherever you are on this topic, no one is persuaded by the beating on each other. We've been doing that for 40 years. Some of us are going to have to be warriors in the legislatures and in the court systems on this, but that's not everybody. And so if that's not your role here, replicating the behavior of the warriors is not going to change where we are as a culture. And so if you, like me, are not a warrior, right? This is a chance to say, hey, person, I really disagree with about this. Let's sit down and talk about what this means. We might learn some really amazing things about each other and about ourselves in the process. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. This week on Pantsuit Politics, we are following up 
on Friday's episode, Five Things You Need to Know About Abortion Law, with an extensive discussion on abortion policy and where we both stand as individuals with regards to the spiritual, psychological, emotional stories surrounding abortion. In the first segment of the show, we'll be going through a couple quick headlines and complimenting the other side. And as always, at the end of the show, we'll share what's on our mind outside politics. And spoiler alert, for me, it's the ending of Game of Thrones, which I'm going to force Beth to talk about again, even though she does not watch the show. You can hear our conversation about having grace-filled political conversations with compassion on the Shameless Mom Academy. We love talking with Sarah there. The May 7th episode features a discussion about our book. So if you'd like to hear that, you can head over to Shameless Mom Academy. We are entering the second week of our Patreon membership drive. Patreon is a way to financially support Pantsuit Politics through monthly donations everywhere from a dollar a month to a hundred dollars a month. We have two community goals. We're a hop, skip, and a jump from our first goal of 750 total patrons, at which point when we reach that goal, Beth and I are going to commit to going to the Iowa caucus and the New Hampshire primary, which I'm super excited about. I think we're going to get that by the time this episode comes out. Our bigger reach goal is 1,000 patrons. And if we get to 1,000 patrons, we're going to do a Pantsuit Politics mini tour. Five cities with the fifth city being picked by a randomly selected patron. So get on over there, support Pantsuit Politics. Right now, we're going to talk a little bit about what Patreon has allowed us to become. Last week, we talked about where we started. Now we're going to share what your support has allowed us to do. First, and I think one of the biggest impacts has been the audio quality of the show. Shout out to the OGs, the original listeners of Pantsuit Politics, who regularly got their eardrums blown out because I'm so much louder than Beth, and they were constantly having to turn it up, turn it down, turn it up, turn it down, until blessings. We got Patreon support that allowed us to hire our producer, Dylan Garvin who makes us sound a so good, and he does fancy sound things like the celebratory sounds and the signaling from left to right by it flowing through your ear pods left to right, which I think is always super cool. I mean, he's just, he's killing it. And not only did the sound quality improve, but removing the sound production from our schedules, from our plates, from our mental load allows us to do a so much better content at Pansy Politics also has allowed us to pay Elise Knapp, who fell directly from heaven. She just Mm -hmm, sends mm -hmm, us an email saying, I would like to help you. And she was willing to help us for free. And we quickly came to understand that Elise's skills must be rewarded with cash money because she is amazing. Mm -hmm. And your support helps us pay her. And we would like to pay her more as well as Dylan because they both do better work than they're compensated for today. Elise makes it possible for you to hear any interviews at all. The kind of people that we invite on Pantsuit Politics, scheduling is a nightmare. Getting logistics together is difficult. Even though everyone is lovely, these folks are packed in what they're being asked to do every day. And Elise spends all of the time coordinating that. She also listens really critically. She and Dylan will say to us, this one is boring. Let's skip it. <laughs> you know, this needs to be amplified. People are really going to like this. If you liked the episode we did where we gave you portions of the event we did in Washington, D.C. with Swanee Hunt and all kinds of women in politics, Elise painstakingly went through and chose which portions you were going to hear and thought about how to put that together. 
So many people say to us, I can't believe that you respond to email as much as you do. We're able to do that because of Elise. We're able to do our five things you need to know about segments because of Elise, because all of the time that she puts into making the show operate, we're able to now put into research and just thinking about what we want to talk about here. So I can't say enough how critical Dylan and Elise are to improving the quality of what we share with you. And we are only able to work with the two of them because of Patreon support. Hello, Pantsuit Politics family. This is Bryn Behrenshausen. I've had the fortune of listening to Beth and Sarah talk about politics for the past couple years since they started their show listening to the very first episode. I started supporting them on Patreon as soon as they offered it because I value their work so much and feel they should be compensated for all the hard work they put in to bringing us a nuanced take on our political whirlwind adventure we're on. I hope you join me in supporting them and allowing them to expand what it is they're doing to strengthen this community and reach a wider audience. Thanks, Beth. Thanks, Sarah. Keep up the great work and keep it nuanced. The support from Patreon allows us to expand the team. It allows us to make Pantsuit Politics our full-time gig. As Beth talked about last week, she quit her full-time job. Instead of trying to squeeze it in, in the off hours, it's now where we will spend entire days in the studio, like today, for example. The five things you need to know about abortion law, those sort of primer plus policy discussion pairings, those would not be possible if we didn't have your financial support. That allows us to do those sort of deep dives in research. So if you're interested in supporting Pantsuit Politics, go to patreon.com slash Politics. We'll put the link in the show notes. There are many, many levels of financial support available. So help us reach our goals and get to 1,000 patrons and continue to support the community here at Pantsuit Politics. Sometimes the first segment of our show is a little bit of a bummer. But today we get to start with good news, which is that the House of Representatives passed the Equality Act. This passed 236 to 173. Every single Democrat present voted in favor of the Equality Act. Eight Republicans joined. It bans discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity in housing, education, credit, employment, and federally funded programs. Basically, this law says the things that we federally protect people based on race and ethnicity and all kinds of other factors for, we are extending to sexual orientation and gender identity. And I think this is a really positive development. I think it's really important. What I've learned from discussions in my local community is there is a perception that these protections already exist at the federal level, and they simply do not. So although I know that this legislation doesn't have a great chance of passing the Senate or the being signed by the president, I still think showing that, one, House Democrats, um, that this is a top priority for them, and two, sort of doing a little bit of public education that this does not exist and we really need it is important. I think a lot of things should be done at the local level. This is one that I think should be done at the federal level. I don't think you should be able to drive across a county line or a state line and have your fundamental rights altered. I don't think that you should leave your community and suddenly be able to be evicted from rental housing because someone learns that you're gay. Right. I just think here in 2019, this is an important statement in the United States. It's an important protection that should be available to everyone. I really don't buy the arguments in opposition. We still have a First Amendment. 
and a court system there to ensure that religious objections are considered and thought through carefully. So I'm really happy that this passed. I wish that it would pass in the Senate. I don't think it will. I wish the Trump administration would be supportive. I think this is a huge opportunity for the Trump administration to show a different set of values than it showed so far, but unlikely. Yeah. And what happened to all the the chest pounding? Remember the Republican convention? We were there and the guy from PayPal stood up and said, oh, this the Trump's going to be great for gay people. Where, where did that go? Yeah, I don't know. But good job, House of Representatives. This is important legislation. I'm glad it passed. It can only help these efforts in the future. And so I'm thankful for everyone who got this moved forward and, and for all the people doing this work locally, because until we have a federal law, we really need the people who are working in communities and at the state level on this topic. So thank you to all of you doing this work. Well, one member of the Trump administration has been very busy, and that is Jared Kushner. First, he came out recently and said that they are going to hold an economic workshop in Bahrain next month. He's hoping that economic development will be the carrot that finally brings peace to the Israelis and Palestinians. Time will tell. Did I correctly read that Bahrain was like, no one told us about this? (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Well, so he's been working on this for a long time. So this this we'll see what happens. He's also been working on immigration and his immigration plan was released in a Rose Garden speech. It's him and Stephen Miller, which is a little bit of an odd couple. The immigration plan really focuses on merit-based immigration. It's a point system. There's an emphasis on highly skilled workers, English speakers, people with financial wherewithal. It dramatically scales back family-based immigration and eliminates the diversity visa program altogether. Neither side is very pleased with this. The Democratic Party says it's non-starter. We're not even going to talk about it because it doesn't address DACA, temporary workers, or illegal immigration. And the hardliners are just as equally displeased with with this proposal. What's the main character's name in the Lego movie? Emmett. The everything is awesome guy. Emmett. That is what comes to mind for me when I think about Jared Kushner like trying to run around the White House and doing all of these big things, but with a real kind of with a real like naivete about what's happening around him. I don't think anybody is going to come out with a plan on comprehensive immigration reform that's going to get support without including some really new ideas. And this Mm -hmm. proposal does not contain new ideas. These are pieces of packages that we've seen time and again. And I don't understand why the Trump administration is thinking, well, it's never worked before, but we'll get it done. It just doesn't make sense to me. The thing that really bugs me about this immigration plan is the emphasis on highly skilled workers and scaling back family-based immigration, because I don't think America needs to go recruit a bunch of engineers and professors. We are really good at bringing up highly skilled workers in this country, and we're getting better at it all the time, and we should have more incentives to do that. We find over and over, this is a point that we didn't get to in our conversation about rural communities, but that we have been thinking about. Immigration is really good for revitalizing agricultural economies and for these communities that have struggled in the wake of changes in technology and manufacturing. It's hard. Culturally, it is hard for both immigrants and for people who live in small communities to meld the population around a new kind of understanding But the communities who are doing that are doing it really successfully. So I think we need more families coming into the United States and particularly coming into small rural areas where they can help 
change the population, revitalize it, demand more restaurants and places to shop and be available for work. I just I don't think that this goes in the right direction when we think about what America actually needs in our immigrant population. Lastly, we wanted to talk about Michigan Representative Justin Amash, who said, came out publicly and said that President Trump's conduct is impeachable, the first Republican to do so. How did you feel about that, Beth? I can't properly put into words how important this Twitter thread was to me. Not a sentence I thought I'd say very often. It was a very important Twitter thread to me because Amash not only said that Trump's conduct is impeachable, he said that he thinks Bill Barr has deliberately misrepresented what the Mueller report says. And he says, and I knew this, but hearing it from a member of Congress was a big deal, that most members of Congress have not read the report in its entirety. And to me, that's unforgivable. And he says, we have a great constitution. It deserves a Congress that lives up to its role. People ought to be studying this and thinking about it. We should do our jobs. And I am so grateful that he did this. And we know that this is going to alienate him even more. He's always been kind of his own thinker, which I appreciate, even when I disagree with him. But we know that this will come at a political cost. And I'm just I'm grateful that for his leadership here. I don't know. I feel like Michigan is a safe space to be that type of Republican. I feel like the people in the upper Midwest, not just because they invite us to speak a lot, which I value. I just feel like they have kind of a a different set of political values. So and I hope they see that in him. There is a streak of independence for sure. Mm -hmm. I think people respect when someone says what they mean. And I, I hope that he can encourage more of his colleagues to do this kind of thinking. It it just frustrates me in a way that I can't even name that I read the whole Mueller report and members of Congress didn't. You know, it just it drives me crazy. OK, we're going to move on to compliment the other side. I'm glad we tackled Justin Amash in the main segment because I have a very important compliment the other side and I wanted to be able to compliment him separately <laughs> or I definitely would have used him as my compliment the other side. Now, if you are driving, operating some sort of heavy equipment, maybe if you're just standing, I really need you to sit down before I do this one. This week, my compliment the other side is Tommy Lahren. She tweeted, I will be attacked by fellow conservatives for saying this, but so be it. This Alabama abortion ban is too restrictive. It doesn't save life. It simply forces women into more dangerous methods, other states or countries. You don't encourage life via blanket government mandate. Tommy Lahren. Didn't see it coming, girl. Good job. Who knew? Also, Pat Robertson? Who would have thunk that? You know you're out there on the fringe. Word? My compliment goes to friend of the podcast and minority leader in Missouri, Crystal Quaid. I posted on our Twitter feed a video of Crystal at work opposing Missouri's bill banning abortions at eight weeks that has no exceptions for rape. Representative Quaid spoke very passionately and personally. She used a lot of her time to try to help other members of the Democratic caucus get to speak on this bill because debate was closed before everyone had an opportunity to weigh in. And I know that her work is not done here, but I thought she led very courageously on this issue. And I know that it's been tough. So thank you, Representative Quaid, for your work. Next up, we are going to share our thoughts on the abortion laws we covered in Friday's episode. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? 
Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to d-i-p-s-e-a stories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and Jean also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsu for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E.com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. Sarah, as I was thinking about this conversation, it seems like there are two needs in our audience right now around the abortion conversation. First is to discuss what we think will actually happen with abortion law in light of all of the states that are passing very restrictive measures and outright prohibitions on abortion. And then secondly, I think continuing our efforts to develop 
ways that people can have grace-filled conversation when the debate is becoming more extreme all the time. I think that's right. Let's dive into the what do we think is going to happen next, a.k.a. what do we think John Roberts is going to do? It's a tough moment to be John Roberts. I think that most of the commentary I've consumed has been leaning in the direction of this court, the Roberts court, will not have a headline that says Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. That instead it will be more like death by a thousand or three or four cuts. I have been going back and forth about this. When I first started reading about the laws, I shared the quote in Friday's episode from the longtime Supreme Court reporter, and I thought, I I see that. I see the idea that they'll just pick away at it and pick away at it and pick away at it until it just falls over with a pinky push, right? But then there are moments when I think they've also set up this precedent for rejecting precedent. And I think about Justice Breyer's statement that what case will they overturn next? I can't fathom why he would put that in there unless he felt like it was imminent. I don't know. And does it matter? Like, does it matter if they, you know, either three things, restrict it till there's not much left, restrict it to where they can overturn it and it won't see that big of a deal or over just outright overturn it. I mean, Does it matter that much which one they do if they are restricting this access to this constitutional right to the point of no return? Like that's that's kind of where I'm at. Like I'm like, why am I why are we tearing ourselves in knots about whether he's going to do it through a thousand cuts or one? I've been all over the map on that question. There is a part of me that looks at the Alabama law, for example, and thinks, well, at least it's honest about where people are. It's honest about where the anti-abortion movement is right now. This is probably sounding like a very one-dimensional view of those laws right now. And we'll talk more about them in, in greater detail in just a second. But just legally analyzing it, I've thought maybe there's some value in the honesty here. Because the trouble with Roe versus Wade has always been it's not an intellectually pure decision from any angle. It's not a decision that you can legally follow in a really sound and steady way, the way we hope for with our with our legal decisions. And so in that sense, maybe there is something that would be more honest about the court just outright overturning Roe versus Wade and, and then seeing what we do from there as citizens. On the other hand, I'm really conflicted about that because I think the smaller cuts matter insofar as the whole underpinning of Roe is this constitutional right to privacy. And if you decide that there's not a constitutional right to privacy, then I worry even more about what Mm -hmm. areas of life the state will start to regulate without that explicit right at least in theory, embodied in the Constitution through judicial interpretation. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. No, I mean, I think that that is definitely a cause for concern. I think that Justice Roberts is smart enough to at least try to put into words that, well, we're overturning this, but there's still a constitutional right to privacy. Don't worry, everybody. We're not going to start regulating what 
birth control you can have. We're not going to start regulating how what medical procedures you must receive during pregnancy or if you have a miscarriage. I read this amazing salon piece from Dahlia Lothwick that we will share in the show notes. And she's talking about how she feels sorry for John Roberts. And she says, why then do I feel sorry for John Roberts? Because what keeps the Supreme Court in business is often the polite subterfuge of complex legal doctrine. We don't so much suppress minority votes as protect the dignity of the states. We don't so much enable dark money to corrupt elections as invite free speech. And we don't so much punish women for bearing children as celebrate God and babies. This is all the kind of democracy suppressive language the justices can get behind. It's why Americans don't riot on the streets. So I think whatever path that he takes, the death by a thousand cuts, the leaving the onerous restrictions already in place across the country as they are, or overturning Roe, they're going to dress it up and say, be cool, everybody. We're not, it's not as bad as you think it is. That's what they always do. I mean, I think that there is a little bit of what's going on in the Supreme Court right now, whether it be really kind of brazen behavior from Justice Alito and Neil Gorsuch or the sort of dramatic pushback from Justice Breyer and Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Elena Kagan and Sotomayor, that it's like the veil is getting lifted. You know, I went to law school and I read these cases and especially from the likes of Scalia, they are beautifully written. They are well-reasoned. But at the end of the day, when you know how everybody's going to vote, like, what are we, why are we pretending that there's legal doctrine propping up any of this? That's kind of like, I, I hate to be that cynical, but with abortion law, it's hard not to get there. I think we just have to ask ourselves what we want this institution to be, because the fundamental objection to Roe began before a whole movement decided to capitalize on people's deeply held religious beliefs. I think that's where a lot of the anti-abortion movement generated from a cynical view that we are going to manipulate people with sincerely held beliefs. But we'll talk more about that in a second. Before that, the main objection to Roe, and a fair one, I think, is that the court acted as a super legislature. We didn't have an answer to this in our existing doctrine, so they made up new doctrine. I think that's a very fair criticism. The importance to me of continuing to at least try to honor precedent and, in, and work within the framework is that over time, even when the court occasionally acts as super legislature, and it has in some important ways, in ways that I wouldn't take back if I could, then they stay consistent. They say, here is the new expectation, American public, work with it. Whether you like it or hate it, here is the new expectation, work within it. If the court can sway as dramatically without having to work pretty hard at it as we're seeing with executive orders, I think America has a real problem. I think the balance between our branches is way off. And I know we're already inching in that direction, but this would take us a mile in that direction. And that concerns me. I mean, I feel like so much of this started with Casey, when they basically were like, oh, well, this is the right decision, but we did it for the wrong reasons. We're going to shift these things around. Like, no matter how good the motivation was or, you know, if Roe was badly reasoned, badly decided or whatever, the second they undercut it and set up an undue burden test, I just think that's when it went off the rails. That's when it became, okay, well, if we're just trying to convince the justices that it's an undue burden, the more conservative justices we can get, I mean, we won't even talk about the fact that we're up there arguing 
before a lot of people, for the conservative side of the aisle, it's all men, and we're trying to argue with them about what's an undue burden on a woman who's pregnant. We won't even get into the hypocrisy or ridiculousness of that situation. But it's like once they once they allowed that, they kind of opened the gates to, oh, well, you can restrict it. It just can't be an undue burden. So we went off the rails. Which was, I'm sure, both foreseeable and difficult to grapple with for the folks who wrote that standard. Because tons of constitutional law is just a balancing test. Mm -hmm. I mean, you hear about that all the time in law school. Everything's a balancing test, which means doesn't mean a whole lot and that the individual understandings of the people on the court are going to significantly impact the outcome. I think the folks who wrote Casey had plenty in front of them to know that that's where it would lead. And I think they also felt this is the best that we can do under these circumstances. It's hard. It's very hard. And in some ways, Roe and Casey's affirmation of Roe to the extent that it did affirm Roe have let the public go to sleep on this issue? Mm -hmm. Is that too strong? Well, I don't know if the public's gone to sleep on it. I mean, I think that moderates have gone to sleep on it. And as happens often in America, it's defined by the farther right and farther left side of the aisle. I had this realization when I was, you know, thinking about this and doing the research. Look, it's infuriating to see that all the votes in Alabama were men. But it was signed into law by a woman. And there are a lot of women leading the I mean, the leader you hear about over and over again of the heartbeat bill legislation was a woman, is a woman. And I thought this, the sort of emotionally manipulative part of this, when you're really talking about people's sincerely held religious beliefs, and particularly when you're talking about women, I feel like what happened is what so often happens when you are in a social movement, in a cultural movement where you're talking about people's rights, which is if we can just pit one group against the other, they won't realize that both groups are suffering and no one's really looking out for them. You know, if we can pit poor whites against black people, then they won't really notice that the fighting is to distract from the the imbalance of power at the top. And I thought, Man, the the worst thing that happened to the abortion debate is the idea that it's women versus babies, right? That 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 this this debate is really we need people sticking up for babies, and that this is the group that we're really protecting, that we're really making sure they have power inside the debate, or even fetuses. Even if you don't want to think about a fetus as a baby, and I understand that, but you know they're not served either. You know, if a, if a Alabama was some paradise for maternal health or child poverty or public education or literally any indicators of the health and well-being of women and children, then this would be a different conversation. But it's at the bottom of every stinking list. And so it's just even more self-evident that we are pitting these sort of sides against each other and both are losing. Neither gains. I just kind of saw that same pattern that so often happens in these debates where we are pitting groups against each other that really are on the same stinking side. I think that's a good bridge to the second part of this conversation. And as we start to talk about how we're analyzing this, I want to acknowledge that we've gotten some 
really personal, Mm -hmm. vulnerable emails since our episode on Friday. And we're grateful for your trust and for your willingness to share. We have listeners who've had abortions under devastating Mm -hmm. circumstances. We've had listeners who've had abortions and feel certain that they did the right things for themselves and their families. We have listeners who have been raped and chosen to remain pregnant and then miscarried. Incredible complexity and emotional trauma in those situations. We have listeners who are concerned about abortion access for transgender men and gender non-binary people. Listeners who've had abortions and regretted them and are now staunchly pro-life. Listeners who birthed children who could not survive despite medical intervention. People who've had IVF and worry about the impact of abortion laws on their ability to create families. It is complicated. Our listeners, I think, reflect America in this way. It is diverse. It is emotional. It is spiritual. And we want to honor as many of those experiences as we can in our own thinking and in our conversation here. And when you have the privilege, as we do, of hearing from people with such intense, personal, and different life experiences, for me, it has solidified how difficult it would be to write a law that really accomplishes what I believe is in almost anyone's heart about this issue. I think hearing from our listeners who have struggled with fertility issues are some of the most illuminating and enlightening for me. And they put me back in a space where I was thinking about these issues in a very different way when we were talking about artificial insemination and in vitro fertilization and the ways other countries handle it. I think the biggest mistake we made in our country is when we decided our values as a nation with regards to reproductive issues belonged in the courts and the legislators. I think the smartest thing they did in other developed countries is set up basically ethical commissions composed of doctors and scientists and religious leaders and philosophers and political scientists in a room. And they said, You guys need to work this out. Let's talk about all the different sides of these issues. Let's talk about all the impacts of these type of guidelines. And you come to us with a proposal. I think when we decided in the United States that all these different areas were just the Wild West and every state can do it different and everybody can set up different regulations for surrogacy and for sperm donation and for egg donation. I mean, I just I think it was a huge mistake. I don't necessarily think it's too late to go back. But this is not, if we have learned anything from where we are with this conversation, is that this is not the right platform in which to have it because it is too complicated, because it affects and touches too many different aspects of our lives as women and as men. And I think that if we could just step away and say, you know what, I don't think the court, the Supreme Court and presidential elections are really the best place to have these conversations. You're exactly right. And I really appreciate that leadership from other nations in setting up ethical commissions to think about where technology is taking Mm -hmm. us. As I was considering this conversation, I realized we don't do very well as a culture defining almost any of the issues at stake here. Mm -hmm. I think the vast majority of Americans and polling suggests that this is true believe that there should be an exception to any ban on abortion for rape. I think that's relatively uncontroversial, despite the fact 
that it is intellectually inconsistent, mm-hmm. right? If, you're, if your feeling is that life begins at conception and we're here to protect life, it's inconsistent to have this exception for rape. But we're humans and we're allowed to be inconsistent. And I think part of having intellect is, is the capacity for inconsistency sometimes. Well, and that's why if you put it with an ethics commission— Ethics are not about consistency because they're not writing law. That's right. You know what I mean? Like, that's why it's such a different, a better place to have that conversation. So taking as an example the idea that most Americans would say rape is a different circumstance, we're not great at defining rape in this country. Mm -hmm. We're certainly terrible at prosecuting it. We have rape kits all over the country sitting in storage rooms that aren't being touched. We have very public examples of how we don't believe the stories from rape survivors. And so here's the thing that perhaps we most agree on. But when you get into the details of that, we struggle. And then I think about life and about where technology is taking us. And on both ends, from the creation of life to the termination of life end, there is such, you could say, progress, such innovation taking place that I'm not sure what life looks like to people in terms of the physical body, Mm -hmm. not even going into the realm of the consciousness or the soul. So I don't know how we write good laws in an area when... What's even possible is almost a daily basis changing. We keep doubling down on trying to make this black and white. We refuse to accept any gravy because we put it on a platform that thrives off black and white and hard lines. And we just keep doubling down and doubling down and doubling down. And I think this hurts both sides. The idea that life begins at conception is understandably a nice moral bright line, but it is difficult. I'm so frustrated with the religious leaders who are like in these movements who are like, it's been clear from the beginning of human history as they are proponents of heartbeat bills. I'm sorry, I read the Bible. I don't remember them talking about a heartbeat because they didn't know what a heart was when they wrote the Bible. So this idea that it's like this easy black and white thing we've had since the beginning of time is just so foolish. And on the other end, I think as a woman who's carried four pregnancies, lost one, have three healthy children, like the idea that I'm supposed to treat what was happening to my body as just like an organ or a kidney, that's not quite right either. There's a lot of gray there. And I still call it a baby. And even as someone who is passionately pro-choice, you know, I believe that life is a gift. And I believe that what was happening inside my body during pregnancy was special. And There's just no room inside a conversation driven by bills like what's coming out of Alabama to let people feel comfortable in that gray area. And so we just double down and we lean into our own confirmation bias and we refuse to be curious. Look, I mean, I have worked and lived in reproductive health much of my life. And I got emails from listeners about things I didn't know about. I didn't know there was a condition in pregnancy that could increase your chance of cancer? I had no idea. Just things like that. We want to push them aside. We want to get it out of the way so that it doesn't dilute the moral righteousness we feel when we look at the issue as black and white. I think that when you get into what this is about, I made myself a chart with columns. Like, here's where I am legally. Here's what I think medically and biologically. Here's kind of where I am spiritually and ethically. 
And my spiritual ethical column was by far the longest. When I stepped back from it, I thought, well, that means that the state should definitively stay out of this, right? Because if it's really about religion, we have separation of church and state for a reason. And then as I probed that more, I thought, well, I bet that for almost any important law that I analyzed, I would have a longer spiritual and ethical column and should than any other column. And the state has certainly a role to play in many of those topics. So I don't think it's that the state has no involvement here. If I just step back and say, should abortion be regulated? In unequivocally, yes. The kind of space that you're in, the equipment that's used, and it's the standards for its sterilization. We don't want people who don't know what they're doing performing these procedures, right? There is a role here. It's just, what's the scope of that role? And I think that when you start to ask yourself the question, what's the scope of that role? And this gets to, Sarah, what you said about what you believe about what's happening in a body at the time of conception, you just get right to the heart of what you believe about humanity and the universe and why we're all here. I can't really analyze this for myself without getting to what do I think a soul is? And what do I think happens to us when we die? You know, it it just takes you into really kind of dramatic territory. But I don't know how we better have these discussions without going there. I don't know. There's a part of me that thinks I got really good at thinking about these issues after having training in law school that says, yes, all those issues come into play but we're not going to let them take over the conversation. And look, sometimes that works well in the law and sometimes it doesn't. But I think when you can say we're dealing with issues of life and death and souls and consciousness, and we still are going to have to push through with our limited knowledge and and think up some regulations. And I know it's hard and it sucks. I mean, we had a torts law professor that we spent a lot of time on how you value life. And I mean monetarily value life. If someone has a wrongful death, what are we going to pay them? That's a thing we have to figure out in the law. And it's hard. Nobody wants to talk about that. Nobody wants to talk about that. We do value life differently, monetarily, every day in this country. And I think that's part of the reason this conversation gets stalled is because nobody wants to have the hard conversation about who are we valuing more, the woman or the fetus? Because what often happens in legal conversations is that we have a bunch of rights that bump up against each other. And no matter how you feel about when life begins, if you give a fetus rights, it's going to bump up against the rights of the person carrying it. So what are we going to do? What are we going to do? We have to deal with this in the law. When your right to be a white supremacist bumps up against my right not to live in fear. So it sucks. It's hard. It's not easy, but sometimes we just need permission to say we have to make tough choices. I read an essay and the headline was, we value women more than babies. And I thought, yeah, you know what? Please just say it out loud. There's two rights here. And do I believe that a fetus is more than an organ? Yeah, I do. I get it. Do I believe the woman is more important? Yes, I do. I believe every woman is an expert in her own story and every woman has inherent value. And I don't see that. And I don't feel that a lot in this conversation. And I think that's why the emotions get so high is anytime you're talking to somebody based on their identity and what they're hearing from the conversation is we don't value you. 
or we don't value you as much as we value this fetus. It's hard. It's really hard. Even in that tort law context, which I think is a good way to recognize that we use a lot to deal with hard and very big questions, there is flexibility. Mm -hmm. We don't have a law that says we always value a human life under this formula. That is a hearing where lots of evidence comes in and the individual circumstances are taken into account. And the truth is, if you had a car accident where a woman was carrying a child and the unborn child dies in the accident, the value of that death would be different Mm -hmm. depending on the circumstances. And so that's where I just I I really understand and hear people who have sincere beliefs about not just the opportunity, but the duty to protect more vulnerable life than their own. I get that. I really think that the best place for that discussion is in our culture, not in our laws, because the pure decision who gets access to this procedure and who doesn't, I just don't think we can write laws that really achieve what works in every individual circumstance. And I don't think we want a process where if you want an abortion, you have to go see a judge Mm -hmm. to decide if you're worthy of one or not. I don't think that's how we want to spend our resources as a society. I don't think we want, by the way, judges determining whether something was a miscarriage or not. Mm -hmm. I think we're in really dangerous territory here, even where people are, are getting there because of sincere intentions And ethics and principles, many of which I agree with. I do believe that life begins at conception. I don't think there's any other way around it. I believe that there is a soul. I believe that, you know, I I saw, I don't like the flippancy about that. I saw John Oliver talking about this and he did this kind of whole thing about how a fetus is kind of a nothing. And I was offended by it. And I don't get offended very easily, but I thought this is just This is so out of line with where I think most Americans are, and especially coming from someone who's never been pregnant. No, thanks. Even if I am right there with you on what the principles involved are, as a lawyer, I can't figure out how to accomplish something that gets to those principles. I am a person who values life. I believe in the basic human dignity. I know so many people responded when we shared our conversation with Erin Wathen, where she says, I am personally pro-life and politically pro-choice and talked about what that means for her. I think a lot of people feel like they're in that space. But I do want to say I don't know where life begins and I don't understand souls. And I think when we as human beings push them through this binary, there is one or there isn't one, we're probably wrong. We like to think about things like that. But the small, tiny moments of connection and consciousness and philosophical wondering I've experienced in 37 years show me that it's never like that. It's never a light switch. It's never black and white. Souls and connection and these huge things we're grappling with, we try to put them in a framework for which they do not fit. Like, is I think the idea that there's a soul and then there isn't, or it's probably not right. You know, I mean, I think that that souls and the, the psychic energy and connection 
that which I believe in and that my faith speaks to cannot be contained in even our simplistic understanding of egg, sperm, and trimesters. I just think it's just so much more than that, and we keep trying to force it through that filter to our detriment and to the detriment of the conversation, which we could really benefit from. You know, I had Ben Potts on a Patreon conversation that I'm going to post this week, and we talked about integral theory and these sort of evolutions of human consciousness, both societally and individually. And this conversation is just like having it is happening at such a low level. And I mean, I couldn't agree more that I think when we're dealing with something this big and this complex, you know, and this is this is a that we it does not belong in the arms of the government. I think that's a realization I've had through our conversations on the podcast where you force me for the first time to really think about what is the government good at? What is it not good at? We need to think about that before we sign it up for new things. And there is not a scenario, knowing what I know about reproductive health, looking at it through the lens of my own experiences with three healthy pregnancies and one lost pregnancy, in which I think the government is well-suited to make these decisions. That's why I lean so heavily on my fundamental principle that guides me in these conversations, which is a woman is an expert in her own life. And there will be women who will make bad choices. Let me be clear on that. There will be women who will make choices I would not make, who I would find heartless or cruel, who would have a number of abortions that I would find most likely abhorrent. But I can't find a better way. I can't find a better way. That's because I'm willing to face those scenarios so that we don't sacrifice women who must suffer, especially in the face of wanted pregnancies and miscarriages, through all these hoops and procedural regulations, which basically tell you over and over and over again, we don't trust you with this decision. That's all it says. We don't trust you. We think you need more time. We think you need more information. Or we just think you're immoral and are making a bad choice. And I'm not comfortable with that. And I never will be. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. 
Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. that when we talk about whether we would make the same decision, I always try to remember there may be decisions that I disagree with based on what I can know. Mm -hmm. But I am so aware after having been through two pregnancies and births, and as I mother these two girls that I adore more than anything, that what goes on in my brain in the arc of even a day is unknowable to anybody else and largely to me because it's really complicated. And so I don't want to sit in judgment of anyone because I recognize that what I can know about the person's decision-making process is always going to be limited. And that's another reason I don't want to probe these issues in court. And I recognize that we do that. We try to do that, at least, in lots of contexts. Almost all of our criminal law is about what is your intention. Mm -hmm. And I just think trying to discern intention in a way that really gets at the heart of what's going on when someone chooses abortion is incredibly difficult and complex. I don't want to steer us too far off the path here, but To your point, Sarah, about the evolution of our thinking, I learned some things about myself just asking myself questions about this topic and about what a soul is. And I I decided, you know, I think here at 38 years of age, and I'm sure this will evolve over my lifetime, I believe that a soul is something that exists before a biological body exists and that outlasts a biological body. And in that way, I don't think abortion can end a soul. I just think it takes a different form and we move on. 
that is something that I would for sure not have said 10 years ago. You know, I've spent a lot more time thinking about these things. And I am sure that 20 years from now, I will be in a different place on. And that, again, is just we don't have a container for that kind of discussion right now. I do believe that kind of discussion is worthy in your families and with your friends. And instead of beating on each other on social media about what the law should be, I think this is a real opportunity to have some deeper and more interesting conversations than we typically have about what it means to be a human in the world. Because wherever you are on this topic, no one is persuaded by the beating on each other. We've been doing that for 40 years. Some of us are going to have to be warriors in the legislatures and in the court systems on this, but that's not everybody. And so if that's not your role here, replicating the behavior of the warriors is not going to change where we are as a culture. And so if you, like me, are not a warrior, right, this is a chance to say, hey, person I really disagree with about this, let's sit down and talk about what this means. We might learn some really amazing things about each other and about ourselves in the process. Can I shift the conversation a little bit about the role of men in this conversation? Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about this because I think we send, I don't know if they're mixed messages, but I think they're confusing. So one thing that's been going around for a long time, and it is exceptional, is Gabrielle Blair's. It started as a Twitter thread. She turned it into a Medium post. This is a mother of six, a Mormon. She runs the blog Design Mom, and she did this amazing thread that was basically like men cause 100 percent of unwanted pregnancies. Biologically, (laughs) the sperm is essential. Women could have orgasms all day, every day, and they're not going to get pregnant. But a man has to make the decision to orgasm and not pull out in order for a woman to get pregnant, basically. Not to wear a condom and not to pull out. And so not to mention that a woman can get pregnant two days a month out of the 12 months, but a man could conceivably impregnate women every day of the year. And I thought it was such a good pushback on the way that this conversation becomes to fall totally and completely on the shoulders of women. And at the same time, I do, I feel that same anger when I see all these men voting on something that affects women. It's like we haven't found a good way to detach the responsibility for getting pregnant from the burden of being pregnant in the conversation. And so I see men sort of being like like progressive men. I'm just going to step out and let the ladies talk. And I get it, but there's also a part of me that's like, no, no. We need allies, and we need you in conversation saying men are responsible for people getting pregnant. And let's talk about that, too, and not just say this is all about women. I mean, pregnancy is, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's this weird dance we're doing because of the, again, word of the day, complexity of the conversation. I think this is really hard because I am not comfortable making this space all about motherhood, when at the same time, I am constantly hoping for a deeper understanding and embrace of fatherhood Mm -hmm. in our country. When we talk about the creation of life and what life means and how we're going to support that life, I think it is critical that men be at the table. I think it is in the details of 
how we treat pregnancy mm-hmm. that I'm less interested in men's understanding. Even men who are biologically and medically trained to understand those details as best they can. I'm just not sure that if you don't have the capacity to become pregnant, you can imagine what the fear of possibly being pregnant when you don't want to be feels like, mm-hmm. what the plethora of emotions that come at you when you get a positive pregnancy test are, what the both trauma and be life-giving beauty of birth can be like. I mean, I just, when we get to the details of what this means, I really do want the folks who have a holistic experience to be the policymakers. Yeah, it's just so hard because I think in the conversation itself, men were never part of the process because of, you know, patriarchy. And now it's like we can't get them to the table because we've said this isn't your realm when that's not true. You know, I think, like I said, I think the the idea that a pregnancy is a woman's sole responsibility is a biological reality and at the same time a societal construction. Both things are true. It's like I want in the the policy positions, the realms of power, I want the table filled for the first time in human history with people who understand what it's like. But at the societal and cultural conversation realm, like, I want my boys to understand that this is absolutely your responsibility. This is absolutely a story and an an issue that will affect you. And to think that even if biologically, even if evolutionarily there's a drive, which I'm not even sure I buy, there's a drive to, you know, spread your seed and move on. The psychological, emotional reality of creating a life with someone and then detaching from it is huge. And and forcing or raising awareness about that, talking about that, I think that would help men and women. And it isn't an on or off, right? I mean, everything about abortion in America suffers from our sense of duality. Mm -hmm. And and that is an instinct that we have to constantly check in ourselves as human beings. I know I have this problem all the time. I'm constantly saying, well, this or that, when that's rarely the case. So maybe the question is not, do men have a role here? They clearly do. It's what is that role? And how can they be more aware of it in the conversation? You know, I was talking to my husband the other night. I I got more upset about this over the weekend than I get over just about anything. I just had this moment. I think it's trailing on the way that I've been working out my feelings about Brett Kavanaugh's Mm -hmm. seat on the Supreme Court. Because for me... The fact that Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed combined with the totality of my life experiences, it solidified for me that my daughters and I and my friends and all of our beloved women listeners are not equal Mm -hmm. and are probably not going to be for generations. Now, that I know is going to sound just several bridges too far. For lots of you. I was going to say accurate, but whatever. <laughs> I see you and I honor you too. But but that's what that meant to me. 
And so then as you have these laws being passed in what is clearly a well-funded and coordinated effort across states, and then the, the idea that this is happening and it's going to be decided by a court that includes this person, and I'm still working my feelings out about that whole situation and the conversation we had around it, it just got me very upset. And I was I was kind of losing sleep over it. And I talked to Chad about it. And in that conversation, I said, I cannot fathom living in a world where one of our daughters gets raped and she has to have that baby under the law. I can't fathom that. And... He said, I just feel like that's kind of an extreme case, Beth, and everybody living in these extremes makes it difficult to have a good discussion. Now, I'm not beating up on him because that was honest. And if you can't have a safe and honest conversation, you're not going to go anywhere in these discussions. And I respect what he was trying to say. But what I realized, especially as I thought more about that, is that seems like an extreme case to him because he doesn't walk around Mm -hmm. in the world fearing being raped. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't talk to people who've been raped. And there's this whole set of life experiences that seem extreme on his radar because he's a really good person who would never harm someone else, who would never take something from someone that doesn't belong to him. I want it to seem extreme to him because that says so much about who he is. At the same time, we know that it's not an extreme case. And even if it were, it is so intense and so important that it cannot be ignored by our laws. And so this is a meandering way of saying men are critical to these conversations and also just spending some time understanding what their roles can be and what limits their perspectives relative to people who've had these experiences. I think that's really important. It's the same way someone sent us a message about being inclusive in this discussion of transgender men. And I thought, I really want to do that. And also that's going to take a lot of work because my capacity to understand that experience is going to be necessarily limited for my entire life. I think there is a part of me that thought... Hillary Clinton lost, and so there won't be a backlash. And I feel like every day, every month, including these abortion laws, is just a reminder like, no, that's not how backlashes work. The emotional nature of this debate is just the trauma we all feel that started with the brazen language of Donald Trump the repeated reports of sexual assaults and the fact that he was elected, these new limitations on reproductive rights, the appointment of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. It's just all of it adds up, and it's just hard not to feel like everyone thinks you're less than. Like you said, like we won't be equal. And it's heartbreaking and it is infuriating. And I just, you know, I get in my head and I'm having these conversations everyone's asking us to have. How do we do this? How do we do this? When everybody just thinks it's murder. And it's like, I want to look at people and say, okay, let me go there with you. Let me say, or put myself in your shoes and believe that abortion is murder. One in four American women will have an abortion. Do you believe one in four American women is a murderer? 
Is that what you think of us? Is that what you think about women? Is that 25% of us are murderers? Either because we're so heartless and careless or because we're so stupid and we don't get it? And that is what's so hard. And I don't have a lot of great advice about how to have a conversation when that feels like what you're arguing with. I don't. I think that there's so much on the line here. And the only guidance I can give is to be gentle with one another. But I don't even know how to do that when the topic is so traumatic and so personal for so many of us. I just don't. And so I guess in the same way that I say, that both of us say when we talk about abortion, we have to get comfortable saying, I don't know. I'm going to have to say when we're talking about abortion, I also have to say, I don't know, guys. (laughs) I don't know. I burst into tears reading these articles, having a conversation about this stuff without getting incredibly upset seems impossible on most days. It does. I think being gentle with each other is always really good advice. It also helps me not to sound like a broken record to just think about, like, what's my work to do here? Because my work is probably not to try to convince someone who thinks abortion Mm -hmm. is murder that it isn't. My work might be to take us to a different place or to just build some trust so eventually we could have that discussion. I mean, I think a lot about the honesty that is required to have a good discussion when you're in different places about abortion. And it made me think about all the ways in which we are comfortable with killing other people as a society, you know, and how we are not honest about that because we keep looking for science and technology to give us ways to do the ultimate violence without feeling like we're violent people. We want to drop bombs via drone. We want to do lethal injection for the death penalty because that's more humane, right? We want to do all of these things where we take life from people and we do it as a society and we say that there is justice in our having done so, but we don't want to feel like we're killing in the process. And I think that line of thinking cuts a lot of different ways when you're thinking about ending a pregnancy. Getting more honest about all of that, though, and teasing out the fact that sometimes we say, yes, we end life, and under the circumstances, that might be the most just result. I think that's important to trying to figure out whether a total ban on abortion makes any sense. And for me, it doesn't. And that's a conversation I'm willing to have with anyone at any time because I am more convinced as my life rolls forward that I am here to try to be a peacemaker. That is not everyone's job, though. And so maybe the best thing we can tell you is be gentle, be aware of where you are, and think about what your work is to do. I think always sharing your own personal evolution on the topic is helpful and sharing your own experiences. It's the like the advice about that they give you in marriage therapy. You know, don't speak in broad generalizations about society or culture or this is wrong or this is right. I mean, you use I statements. I feel like this. I used to think this. 
then this happened to me and now I feel like this. I mean, I feel like that might be one of the best, healthiest ways to even begin to talk about this. I think that's true. The one thing that creeps up for me when I hear you say that is just, man, for the past three years, we've just been saying, American women, please bear your souls. Mm -hmm. Please share the worst, most horrific, most damaging thing that's ever happened to you so that someone might care about it. I do too. And I hate that. And so I totally agree with you. And I also want to say, I do not believe that it is everyone's job to spill that stuff in front of whomever because we're trying to educate the world on your life experiences. So I... Man, it just takes me back to being gentle. I think you're right. Sometimes that's going to be exactly the right thing to do. And sometimes be gentle with yourself and and give yourself permission to not go there. Well, thank you for being gentle with us in this conversation. Again, the emails and support we have received and heard have been unbelievable. I'll be thinking about them for the rest of my life. And I thank all of you for being gentle with us and trusting us with your stories. And we hope that you go out and think differently about this topic and are better equipped to have those conversations with those you love. We're going to make a real hard turn here because, Sarah, the world wants to know what you thought about the Game of Thrones finale. Okay, so like I'm less mad I'm not mad where we ended up. I'm just mad that the showrunners were not both patient enough to get us there and to show us, not tell us. And really, probably just up for the challenge overall. They did good when there was source material. We should have stopped until George R. R. Martin read the books. But, like, seeing where we ended up and kind of seeing, spoiler alert, that it was really about the House of Stark and and where those characters' arcs ended. I'm not mad. I'm really not mad about any of that. It just, for a series that did such good work in the beginning and felt like it was doing new things, for them to rush it and wrap it all up neatly in a bow was just, it was anticlimactic. It was not worthy of some of the bigger, more important moments on the show. But also, I'm tired of talking about it and thinking about it, and so I'm ready to just like... Be like Game of Thrones, the end, moving on. As a non-Game of Thrones watcher, I felt so disappointed for everyone when I saw that widely maligned footage that included a Starbucks cup. Right? Because I just thought like, wow, everything I've heard about this is that it brings the detail and ambition of cinema to TV. And for them to have been in have been so careless about the ending when folks across the country are so invested. That's that's too bad. And I hate it for the people involved in that, too, because yep. we all screw up in our jobs. And I have grace for them. And I'm just I'm sad for everybody that that screw up happened. I do not have grace for the two showrunners. They've used up all my grace. I feel like all they wanted was to cash their big fatty checks and move on to Star Wars. And I think they're going to screw that up, too. So they're coming for your franchise. Know that. They're supposed to do the next three Star Wars movies, and they're not good at it. It's not going to be good. I'm just telling you now. Okay, well, I would like to talk about a finale as well. It's a season finale, not a series finale. I would like to discuss the crap on a cracker that was (laughs) the finale of Survivor this season. It was so disappointing to me. I just can't believe Survivor's still going. It's crazy to me. How many seasons has this been? I think this was 38. Loud. 
I think it was 38 because 40 is coming really soon. And I heard that they have special plans for 40 that I'm excited about. But listen, human beings are interesting. And what you do to human beings when you put them in extreme environments is never going to not be interesting. True. They tried to innovate this season and I was with them. So usually on Survivor, you get voted off the island and you're off the island. Torch is snuffed. You're gone. The end. This season, they had Exile Island. So you get voted off, then you have the chance to stay in the game, and you go to a different island, and it really sucks. And then there are a couple of opportunities where there's a challenge, and you can play your way back in. Like Last Chance Kitchen. Exactly. I get why you're trying something new. I see what you're doing here. It did make for some interesting moments. This cast was really fascinating, because the more people have watched the show, the better they get at playing the game, right? Ah, right. So... The stakes keep going up in kind of how people play the social part of the game, especially, and how they hunt for the immunity idols and all that stuff. But they let somebody come back right at the very end of the game. And so he comes back, he immediately gets picked for a reward, which means he gets to have a big old stake as soon as he gets back. And then he has to play in two competitions, I think, and he ends up winning the whole thing. What? And it bothered me, okay, not to take anything away from him because what everybody does out there is hard. All of the people who play for even 24 hours have done more than I could possibly do. I do not have the constitution for this. I get upset about fruit flies. Like, I admire all of these folks. But I don't think somebody should be able to come into the game late like that and win it. And I think that the way they set it up, it just reinforced some of the more problematic aspects of the game. So I'm just saying... I shared in a little bit of the finale malaise this weekend. I think you're being too nice about the innovation because the reason Last Chance Kitchen works is because you're testing their cooking abilities, not their endurance. If you're taking people out, then they're not enduring any longer and they get to come back after a break. That doesn't make any sense. You want to hear something hilarious? Apparently, my husband is walking around outside of where I'm recording because he just texted me to say, not exile, edge of extinction. Chad, thank you for that correction. It was not exile (laughs) island. That was a different season. This is the edge of extinction. I appreciate it. No, I, I think you're right, Sarah. I am trying to be generous about this because I get what they were trying to do, but I did not like the execution of it. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pansy Politics. It seems like we're entering a new phase where they're just going to be long. Y'all seem to be okay with that, so I guess we'll just keep moving forward. I did want to say before we wrap up, I am less than 500 Instagram followers away from having the power of swipe up, which I will not abuse like the showrunners of Game of Thrones or Survivors. So if you have not yet followed us on Instagram or stolen your loved one's phone so they can follow us on Instagram, please do so. And reminder, The Nightly Nuance is open to the public this week. So if you have been thinking about subscribing at The Nightly Nuance level on Patreon but just weren't sure what you'd be getting into, you can find out this week. This is your chance. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Paint Soup Politics. And until next time, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major 
life-giving way. Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Cherry Haas, Sarah's husband, Nicholas Holland, and my husband, Chad Silvers. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.